Good morning. It's so good to see you guys on a cloudy, rainy, dreary day. Hey, are we the only ones that had our electricity go out last night? Yes. <laughs> That's probably true. Went out multiple times. Was out again this morning. I don't know what's up with that, but hopefully it'll stay on most of today. Happy Father's Day, if you didn't know it from the video earlier, and you may not have. It is actually Father's Day, um, I'm told. So, ladies, uh, step it up a notch this year, would you? So, we're not going to be able to go out and do our normal manly things because the weather's not beautiful. So, uh, make us feel special uh, today. Now, hey, uh, I, I know you guys noticed uh, Jake's not on stage leading with us this morning. So, you've been experiencing him more in his worship pastor role since they got here. You're going to experience him some in his executive pastor role over the weeks to come as he is sort of uh, still has the responsibility of overseeing what happens up here and will be up again time uh, uh, often here and there. But he's going to be out moving around on Sunday mornings, uh, being able to get a feel and be a part of what's going on in the wider church life on Sunday mornings. He'll be dropping in and getting to be a part of Sunday morning Bible study classes and getting to just uh, be around and, and see how we're functioning as a church. So I'm excited about that. We'll be in Matthew chapter 7 again this morning. Matthew chapter 7 again this morning as we sort of round the corner toward uh, nearing the end, I guess at least, of our series, The God You Thought You Knew, going through the Sermon on the Mount. While you get there, I just you know, want to say we, we live in a kind of a fascinating time right now. Anybody notice the, the uptick in bad behavior in our society uh, since we're coming out of COVID? It's sort of like we were hibernating bears and we aren't sure what to do in the sunlight now. People getting kicked off of flights right and left. Um, parents getting into a fist fight at a t-ball game. A t-ball game, right? The kids are so little and so uncoordinated, they can't even hit a ball that's thrown to them. You have to sit it on a stick and let them hit it. And dad's out there ripping their shirts off, you know, going to show somebody who's who, right? I, I was delighted to see in the news yesterday or maybe this morning that uh, a man who didn't feel like he was getting his order right at Starbucks, I believe, um, pulled a gun on the cashier at the window and had her fix uh, his order. The cashier happened to be the police chief's teenage daughter, though, in that town. Fantastic, right? He's now in jail where he belongs and all other losers who do such things. So, um, you know, I don't, I don't know. At some point, you, you don't know whether to pray or just get a bag of popcorn and sit back and watch. Um, but right, I, I hope we do turn a corner there. Uh, some of you may remember, I'm, I'm not a poetry guy, which takes you about seven seconds to probably guess. Um, I, I had to do poetry, though, in, in a high school and in college and in lit classes and things like this. But if you remember any poetry, and some of you are poetry people, so you know a lot of it, you read it regularly. But for the rest of us who aren't, there may be one poem that we remember from our school years. It begins like this. Let me see if this will jar your memory. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood. Does that ring a bell for some of you? Some of you are still lost. You're not even sure what's happening. Um, that is from The Road Less Traveled, The Road Less Traveled by Robert Frost. And there's an interesting story behind it. Frost uh, was uh, eventually a literary giant, well-known, uh, probably the best-known American poet of the 20th century. Uh, this has become uh, quickly, and quickly became, 
the most beloved American poem, though often we don't understand Frost's meaning in there. And it was written really to be playful and to be fun. Robert Frost and his family had moved from the United States in 1911 to London. He had started out in one industry and wasn't doing very well, and he and his wife had experienced the loss of two of their six children. Uh, they moved to a farm in New England that he had inherited uh, from a relative after their passing and uh, gave farming a go and found out that wasn't going to work. And he moved to London in 1911 and became fast friends with a man named Thomas Edwards. And it's really out of this friendship between Frost and Edwards that we get uh, the poem, uh, Two Roads, or The Road Not Taken, The Road Not Taken, about two roads and two paths. And what's funny is it sprang up out of the different personality that Frost and Edwards had. Frost was by nature a risk taker, right? He was always excited, always ready to go. He was very decisive. He made decisions quickly. Edwards was exactly the opposite. He was indecisive, cautious, nervous, always seemed to second guess himself after he had made a decision. Anyone relate to Edwards uh, this morning? Well, they would hike, they would walk a lot outside of London in the countryside, and they would talk about literature and about poems. Both were writers and authors at the time. And when Frost was leading, and they got to a point in the path where it split off into twos, he just took whatever direction he wanted and kept going. And Edwards would always freeze. It always took him a little while to decide, well, if I go this way, maybe we'll see this or we'll wind up here. If I go this way, maybe we'll experience to do that. And Frost is like, get on with it, right? And so he wrote, he wrote The Road Not Taken really as kind of a playful gesture to his friend Edwards. Uh, written and published in 1915, Edwards wrote it at a, Edwards read it at a pivotal time. Frost had taken his family and gone back to New England by this time, thinking that, that Thomas Edwards would follow him, but he didn't. He couldn't make up his mind. He couldn't decide whether he wanted to stay in London or come to the United States. And with the uh, outbreak of World War I and World War I heating up, he read this poem by his friend Frost, and it it contributed to his decision to be decisive and to join the British Army and go and fight in World War I, where he would ultimately be killed later that year in 1915. But it was meant to be playful and to be fun. And Thomas used to poke at Frost right after it was released, telling him, if you have to explain to people that something you wrote is supposed to be funny, perhaps you failed. And so they had a good friendship. Frost would say later in life that Edwards was the closest thing he ever had to a brother. Let me quote the last line for you. Some of you will remember it. Some of you could quote it. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Centuries before Robert Frost was born and he wrote this beloved poem, there lived one whose life was far more consequential than Robert Frost, who also spoke of two roads and of a path less traveled by. And he comes to encourage us, as he did his followers in that day, to understand the gravity of the roads we're following and to indeed follow him along the path less traveled by. And this is one of uh, the most divisive realities, one of the most divisive doctrines in Christianity is the supremacy 
of Christ. That salvation, that being made right with God, that all of the ultimate realities that you and I are looking toward as human beings, that our hearts are longing for, are found only in Jesus Christ alone. But let's hear Jesus talk to us about this now. In Matthew chapter 7, two verses, verses 13 and 14. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. Only a few find it. As Jesus turns a corner in the Sermon on the Mount right here and he begins to talk to us about two gates and two roads and two destinies. He's setting up the ending of this message. You'll notice in the coming weeks that Jesus moves out of these verses and he goes on to talk about true and false teachers and prophets, true and false followers of his, and true and false foundations upon which we build our lives. And he is setting that up here as he transitions from what he has been talking to us about the, the life that we're called to live and enabled by God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit to live as followers of Jesus. And he's calling us to be reflective about our own lives and about the lives of those around us as we live out this thing called Christianity, this thing called the church and all of the Sermon on the Mount up until this point has been leading to this realization and everything after it is simply fleshing this out that two paths, two roads, two gates stand before us. And this is a series of choices and outcomes, a series of contrasts that Jesus lays before his followers that day and God lays before us today. R.T. France, a great New Testament scholar, who specializes in the gospel, said, this is not a matter of more or less successful attempts to follow the lifestyle of the kingdom of heaven, but being either in or out, saved or lost. We don't like those kinds of categories. We don't like to hear Jesus say, you are either with me or against me. He who is not with me, he who doesn't gather with me, is against me and scatters. Because you and I are not our own masters. We are enslaved by the sin that has so fractured us. And we're either going to follow the inclinations and the movement of our sinful nature, or we're going to be transformed by the power of God, set free in Jesus Christ, Declared to be saints who sometimes still commit sin, but are no longer sinners. And you see this throughout the corpus of the New Testament. The New Testament writers absolutely believed that you and I in Christ are a new priesthood, a new people. We are saints still plagued by the issues of sin. Saying that Jesus is the way often offends like Western sensibilities. And what's interesting is, 
among some generations in the church who claim to follow Jesus. They wrestle with this, right? And when really pushed, they'll say, well, I'm not sure that he's the only way, right? But I believe he's the way for me. But let's hear what Jesus says. He starts and he talks about a choice of gates, a choice of gates. He says there's a narrow gate and there's a wide gate. This wide gate allow many in and many pass through it and it leads to their destruction. But the narrow gate leads to life. I, wanna, I want us to just walk through a couple of, uh, of false gates, a few false gates, if you will, that I think we try to enter into and remain in God through. The first is the false gate of religious works. The false gate, not just good works, the false gate of religious works. Now let me tell you, if you grew up in church like I did, this one can be really, really tricky. This one is, is uh, really subconscious, but very much there if we're not careful. We tend to equate our standing before God, our relationship in God and God's pleasure with us, we tend to relate that with our good religious works. We were at a, uh, a biblical intensive this last week. Jake and I uh, flew out and spent several days uh, learning from N.T. Wright as we did a, an intensive through the book of Galatians. Galatians really uh, a book that, that seeks to answer the question, who are the people of God? Who are the current people of God in Christ? It's not really a book about Christian freedom, though it's often presented that way, but what constitutes the, the living, breathing church of Christ now? It was funny, uh, when we got there, some of you saw this. Jake uh, typed it out on his Facebook account, his page. But we got there, and you went in, and people were registering, and other people had registered, and we were standing underneath this rotunda where voices echoed. So you've got a lot of mini conversations going on around pastors and other leaders who hadn't seen one another in a while talking about everything from COVID and post-COVID to family and uh, what we were doing there. So you've got all these conversations going on around us. And then there are the young women who are handing us our, our course packets for the intensive and our name uh, lanyards and all of this kind of thing. And they're trying to listen. And Jake comes up and uh, Jake's a little quieter than I am. In fact, sometimes I'd be talking to Sharon on the phone in our rental and Jake is like, dude, you're talking really loud. But I'm FaceTiming, right? So I'm just old enough to think that if I'm FaceTiming with her, I need to yell. I don't know why that is. The speaker's the same, right? Um, but anyway, so, so Jake's a little bit quieter than me, but he went up and she said, last name, please. And he said, Turner. And she said, Turd? And he said, um, Turner. And she said, oh, okay. And she starts looking down. Now, I would have let it go at this point. And Jake said, did you just call me turd? And she said, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I just kept telling myself, keep a straight face. Keep a straight face. Just get your stuff. Here's your material. Have a good conference. And Jake said, best thing that's happened to me all day. She was beat red. Interesting things happen sometimes when you travel. But part of what Jesus is doing here is he's pushing back against what the Galatians would come to wrestle with. 
years later. What does it mean to be the people of Christ? What does it mean to be Jesus followers? Is that something that is dependent upon or achieved by our religious works? And to think that the church in the southern region of Galatia, to think that they were the only people that struggled with this is crazy. It lives in you and me. It lives in you and me. Sometimes there's guilt and there's angst that we feel when we don't do something, even like prayer or Bible study, that's rooted in an untrue place. Right? That's a false gate. There's also the false gate of, of other religions. Of other religions. This idea, uh, contrary to what Jesus is saying here, that all roads ultimately lead to the same place. Now we know that a thinking person could think about that metaphor for a little while and realize that it breaks down at every single level, right? Never do two roads ultimately lead to the same place. It doesn't happen physically. It doesn't happen ethically or morally. It doesn't happen with regard to our health. If you never exercise and eat garbage all your life, see if that lands you in the same place as a person who strives to take care of themselves physically and eat at least somewhat healthy. But this is the age we live in. We're like, hey, you can be Christian, right? Be Christian. You be you and do your thing. You just need to acknowledge that all these other people, their thing is as true as yours is, right? That's the, that's the pressure we live under today. Leslie Newbigin, who was a 20th century missionary to England from Great Britain and came back to Britain after decades in India, and found uh, his country and Western civilization completely transformed, uh, wrote in a great book called The Gospel in Pluralist Society, The Gospel in Pluralist Society, that he would often hear this analogy or this metaphor given to him, that people would say, hey, hey, look, all religions are equally valid, right? As long as they're leading people to peace and toward what they're looking for. And, and he would say, people would say this, it's like blind men looking at an elephant, which is interesting because you wonder how they found the elephant, group of blind men out walking around. But they find this elephant, and one says, man, an elephant is long and, and slender. He's got a hold of the tail, and another one says, no, 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 it's long and circular but thicker, and he's got a hold of the leg. And one says, no, an elephant is broad and flat, and he's leaning up against the side of the elephant, and so on and so forth. And people will say, you see, it's like that. They're all partially wrong and they're all partially true. But when you say that, do you understand that what you're saying and saying that is you see it all? It's an exclusive statement of definitive truth. You're saying, I see the whole picture, the whole elephant. That's the only way that I can tell you everyone else has a part or a piece of it. Other religions, and if you've studied them at all, you can know this. They may all be wrong, right? But they cannot all be right because they do not teach the same thing. They do not teach the same thing. There's the false gate of other religions. There's the false gate of cultural Christianity, which may be the most dangerous to us in our day and our time. There's actually a book written about three years ago that, that um, came out that the, the entire book was written around how you share the gospel with cultural Christians, with people who believe they're already followers of Jesus, but they've had no personal encounter with the risen Lord that has radically changed their life and drawn them into lifelong discipleship. 
so that the person and work of Jesus Christ and the word of God is that which is ultimately shaping their worldview, their ethics, their political understandings, the way they see people, the way they understand money. And they're actually offended at the suggestion that they might not be Christians, right? Because they vote a certain way and they dress a certain way and they go to church regularly. But they don't demonstrate the kind of love for people that Jesus says comes from him. They don't demonstrate the kind of sanctification and life change across the years that Jesus said would be normal. This is a really dangerous one for us. The last one I'll share this morning, though there would be many more, is the... uh, the false gate of your parents' faith, right? You sort of grew up in a Christian home, and, and we, tend to, we tend to think kids are just sort of umbrellaed in, and kids will think that often. For a long time in life, I'm good. You know, mom and dad are really faithful. And hey, mom and dad, if you're really faithful, that's good. Stay really faithful. In fact, I'll tell you something radical. Even make your kids come to church. Just make sure you're bringing church home in a way that, that shows the gospel in your house right? Show grace at home. Love your kids. Don't let your behavior be drugged down to their level by theirs. Right? It's so easy for me to say up here. In the moment, that's really hard. Think about parenting. I, I heard this in an interview a couple of weeks ago. It was really convicting of me. Think about parenting at home in such a way that people could be there, and regardless of how your children were acting, they can look at you, mom, or dad and say, man, if that's Christian parenting, I'm in. I don't know where you get the, the, the power to parent like that, right? It's not so much that kids have been taken to church against their will for years that causes them to rebel. It's, their ta- it's that they're taken to church against their will by parents who never brought church home, right? The gospel didn't seep into the home. Parents' faith won't get you anywhere, This is not as big an issue here as it was for us in San Antonio, but a lot of talk with young adults there who were really in with the God and the gospel as we we presented in Scripture, but their Catholic family and their Catholic background so, so heavily entrenched in San Antonio and South Texas and in their families, they just felt like they were kind of moving from sort of one shelter to another, right? And it was a struggle for them. Those things are false gates. And up and against them, Jesus presents himself as the true gate. We see this language in John chapter 10. John chapter 10, beginning with verse 7. Therefore Jesus said again, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. It's a bummer that we, right, that that in God's sovereignty we are the sheep. Anybody ever been around sheep? Not the brightest creatures on earth. Not the brightest creatures on earth. You'll never see a seeing eye sheep. You'll never see a bomb sniffing sheep. But you know, once you get around one another and you get to know yourself with a little bit of self authenticity, you go, it's fitting. Right? It's fitting. So he says, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and out and find pasture. It's a really beautiful phrase of the freedom and the rest that is offered us by God through Jesus Christ. 
Most of us are not, we're not taking that today. But it is offered us. It is ours to have. In verse 10, the thief comes only to kill or to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Here Jesus is very clearly placing himself as the gate by which we enter into union and forgiveness and wholeness with God. He makes it even more plain in John 14, chapter 6. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. Don't miss that definite article there. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts 4.8, some of you will remember this great passage. Peter and John are called before the Sanhedrin for continuing to spread this idea that Jesus is now king and not Caesar. That Jesus is Lord, the God of the Jews and of all people. Acts 4, 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them in giving his defense, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. No other name. Not Buddha, not Muhammad, not the United States, not your political party, not secular humanism. No other name. Now, here, here's the thing. You can disagree with this and you can disbelieve it, but you can't dismiss it. You have to bump into it. You can't claim to sort of follow Jesus. You have to, you have to decide about Jesus and you have to follow Jesus on his own terms. Not on yours. He will not be mocked. He will not be added to your mantle of idols. To call on when you think he can supply more power than the other ones can. He's Lord of all that is. Or he's an absolute nutcase. Because who claims to be the sovereign son of God? The Lord of all creation. The one whom through everything, through whom everything that has been made, has been made. Unless it's true. Right? He can't just be a cool guy who teaches nice stuff. John Stott said that no one can follow Christ who has not first denied himself or herself. No one begins to follow Jesus without first denying self. There's the choice of the two gates, but there's also the choice of two roads. There's a broad road, Jesus says. There's a broad road. The interesting thing about the broad road is that it's, it's easy. Right? The broad road is the way of the crowd. 
The broad road is, is the way of cultural popularity. It's whatever our culture or my friends or my political party says is right. Cut corners ethically, no problem. Slap each other's back so that we can uh, kind of grease the, the skids a little bit and get ahead, no problem. Exalt ourselves, no problem. On the broad road, part of why it's easy is because life is ultimately about me. It's about my advancement and my glory. That's the broad road. That's why so many people can enter it. The broad road is, is the, the road of me. It's the road of me. It's the road of my desires and my wants. That's why it's so easy to follow. But the way of Christ is narrow because it's guided by divine revelation. The revelation of God given to us in the Bible, in His written word, and ultimately in Jesus Christ. The one in whom all the fullness of God dwell. You want to know who God is? Look at Jesus. You want to know how God relates to you? Look at Jesus. You want to know how God relates to other people? Look at Jesus. You want to know what to think about something where truth really is? Look at Jesus. You confused about some other part or portion of Scripture? Sift it through Jesus, His life, and His words. It's the narrow road, but it's the one that leads to life. It's the narrow road, but it's the one that leads to life. Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. I want to read two verses, 29 and 30. Mark chapter 10, 29 and 30. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who were first will be last, and the last will be first. There's a mystery to how this works out, but Jesus says, come to me, give yourself to me. This road this teaching my life the narrow gate the narrow path is the way to life it's the way to life can i tell you why we see so many examples in our day uh, of people follow uh people falling in very public ways who have had very large ministries and where we see churches acting so badly making the news Part of it is because underneath our surface of soft handshakes and smiles, we don't really believe that the narrow way of Jesus is the way of life. So we give nods and we shake hands and we go to church, and then we engage in all of this other behavior that we feel like really does produce life and lead us to life until the veil's jerked back and we realize Jesus was right all along. Jesus was right all along. This is not a new truth, right? Old Testament writers understood this too. Psalm 1, the first psalm in the book of Psalms. Psalm 1 says this, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, 
or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. I remember one time at my last church, we, we always had a, a pretty hearty portion of people sitting in who were uh, either new to faith or, or just newer to the church thing uh, completely and, and weren't, uh, weren't quite there yet. And I remember uh, teaching out of some passage of Scripture, and I said, blessed, a few times. And after the, uh, after the service was over, uh, one, of, one of the young guys came up and he said, hey, man, uh, like, I don't want to point something out. I just want you to let you fix it before next service. Um, you said blessed instead of blessed, right? So he just never heard it read that way before or at all. He just could read the word on the page, and I didn't turn any other SSED words into that. So I said, it's cool, man. I appreciate that. I'll take it into account for the second service. But look at verse 2. But whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. The psalmist says, this is the person who's blessed. The person who loves God and loves the way of God and loves the word of God and thinks on the word of God. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Look back at verse 3 briefly. That person, the person who delights in the law of the Lord and who meditates on God's ways is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. I, I remember flying one time and, and looking down as we, were, as we were flying back into somewhere, and it was a, a fairly drier climate, an arid climate we were flying into, and you could notice from thousands of feet in the air where the rivers were, or the big streams, right? Because there was green around them. There was green around them. Because those plants and those trees were rooted deeply at the source of nourishment. And so, even so, everything else around them was dry and was withered. They were flourishing. They were flourishing. So it is with you and I as followers of Jesus. Let me share with you a, a few things, three things briefly that I, I think looking back on church history and and looking throughout Scripture consistently characterize the life of those who are on the narrow road, those who are following the way of Christ. The first is Christ-centered servanthood. Christ-centered servanthood. Followers of Jesus serve, and they serve for His glory, and they serve because they've been served. They don't serve to be seen. They don't serve to make themselves feel better. They serve centered on the person and work of Christ. They serve because they've been redeemed by a servant. See, this is why Christianity can be so utterly exclusive at its core while being completely inclusive. It's because the one who is the only way chose to throw his arms wide on the cross taking your punishment and mine and all of the penalty of all of the sin that has ever been or will ever be committed by the human race on himself and to give his life as a ransom for many. He's a servant. So there's no place for arrogance 
in the heart of his followers. We're simply servants. We're simply servants. That's why uh, the summer serve groups are so significant this summer that we're actually tangibly going to be living this out in our community. By the way, those of you who've signed up for that, if you haven't taken a second to go to the website and select what date and what opportunity, serving opportunity, you want to be a part of, go ahead and do that. I know many of you did this last week. I know John reached out and connected with many of you. But if you haven't, just go to our website, lmbc.us, click on that image, and go ahead and select the times you'd like to serve. Hey, if you want to serve at two or three of them, sign up for them. If you can just make one, do it. But this characterizes the narrow road. Biblical community is the second thing that consistently characterizes those on the narrow road. We have been freed from the the constant, exhausting need to hide from everyone. And we are following Jesus, not just in a larger community, in teaching moments like this, but in smaller pieces of that community with brothers and sisters in Christ where we can reach out to others in our struggles, right? I've said again and again and again, and you'll hear me say it again and again for years to come. Like, most of us don't need an accountability partner. We need a gospel-centered friend. Because here's the truth. If you can hide stuff from your best friends and your spouse, you can hide all day long from a once or twice a month check-in accountability partner. What we need are men and women of the way who are on the journey with us, who can love us and challenge us and forgive us, who can stand in Christ's stead in our life closely. Biblical community has always characterized true, genuine followers of Jesus. That's why um, part of what COVID did was sort of filter out those on the fringes and we hope, we, you know, you always want a, a hefty amount of people on the fringes moving in. And thank God for Zoom and for online services. But there is no substitute for being in a room together. It's a starting point. It's a next best option. But this, and this on all different levels and sizes, is what God intends His people to be. Christ-centered servanthood, biblical community, and sacrificial generosity. It was these things that completely astounded and confounded the Roman emperors and officials throughout the widening Mediterranean world in the 1st century and 2nd century and 3rd century and led to the rapid, so rapid growth of Christianity in the midst of an absolutely pagan world that Constantine... The emperor of Rome finally converged, probably more for political reasons than personal conversion reasons. But the onlooking world, they, they were watching Christians serve, stay in cities when plagues hit and everyone else ran, and they were ministering to those who were sick. They had this beautiful sense of togetherness where men and women were together, slave and, uh, and freedmen were together, poor and rich were together. And they had this radical generosity. They were always giving and pooling resources and spreading the gospel and caring for the poor. Chrysostom said that Christ's hard and narrow way is also to be welcomed as his easy yoke and light burden. 
the choice of two gates and the choice of two roads ultimately leads to a choice of destinies. And Jesus is not dishonest about this. He says, what you and I choose today, what we do with this truth about who he is, leads us directly, continually, eternally in one direction or another. An eternity spent in God's new creation with Jesus as Lord of all in the personal presence of God himself where there will be no more tears or an eternity spent in hell separated from God forever, becoming more and more and more self-engrossed, more and more and more of the one we chose to be on earth. Romans 6.23, some of you know, some of you have memorized. Paul says that the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God or the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul's acknowledging what Jesus said, that there are two gates, there are two roads, and they lead to two very different places. I want to again read to you the words of John Stott, that great 20th century Anglican pastor. What is immediately striking about these verses is the absolute nature of the choice between us. We would prefer to be given more choices, or better still, to fuse them all into a conglomerate religion, thus eliminating the need for any choice. But Jesus cuts across all our easygoing syncretism. He will not allow us the comfortable solutions we propose. Instead, he insists that ultimately there is only two possibilities to choose from. What do you choose this morning? You can't sit through a message like this and do nothing with it. You will respond one way or another. So here's my plea and here's my challenge. Some of you, and you, you said yes to Jesus years ago. You entered through the narrow gate and began the journey on the narrow path, and you've drifted. You're in the ditches right now. Held by God's grace, still on the narrow path. But it's been a long time since you were sincerely, intentionally, intentionally, passionately pursuing Jesus daily. Allowing Him to soften your heart. To make your mind pliable. And your soul responsive. If that's you this morning, I just pray that you would confess that to God. As we sing in response in just a minute, you just pray. Confess that to God. Ask God to give you a new heart and a new spirit. To renew in you the joy of your salvation in Him. To purify you. And then you get back on it. You just listen and respond to the promptings of God. Some of you in here, you have never said yes to Jesus. Never. You said yes to cultural Christianity. You said yes to church. You said ah, maybe to your parents' faith. But you've never died to yourself and said yes to Jesus Christ. And he's calling on you this morning to do that. If that's you in here this morning, I pray, I challenge you, I plead with you to say yes. God, forgive me. 
take my life. I give it to you. If that's you this morning and that's your prayer and that's where you are, don't leave this morning without letting us know you made that decision. On that connection card that you have, that connection card is important. And one of the things that you can do on the back there, that top left corner, is you can just let us know. You can simply mark that and we'll be in touch with you. To help you begin walking in this new life that God's given you in Christ. Why would you wait? Let's stand and pray.